I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. Deborah Levy, congratulations. Happy Publication Day. Thank you, Shahida. I'm so excited. I'm overexcited <laughs> to be talking to you. Oh, that's so kind of you. Um, I think we have the fact that it's Publication Day and that we have a mountain of the books here and a huge crowd who are all going to buy the book or have already. It means that there's a kind of dangerous possibility that many people will not have yet read the book unless they were very, very fast, in which case we can say, all sorts of things, lies, <laughs> fabrications about what happens in the book. But we won't, we won't, we won't do that. Um, you all know who Deborah Levy is. She's a brilliant novelist, dramatist and memoirist. And this is her latest novel. And it is, if you haven't read it, it is compelling and strange. And it is a, is a mood. I think young people say that's a mood about memes. But this book is a, is a mood. And when you read it, you will understand what I mean by that. I feel quite daunted talking to you. I don't often feel daunted talking to you because like lots of women, I think we read your work. I think largely the memoirs and feel Deborah Levy is in our brain. But this book I feel daunted about because it is so ambitious in its plotting and successful. There's real mastery in the execution of the plot, but it is, it is so meticulously and, and plotted in such a complicated way that I feel daunted even beginning to talk about it. And we should say beforehand that we will try very hard not to spoil this book because there are certain things that happen in this book that are swerves, I would say. That yes, and Shahida, can I encourage you uh, not to feel daunted and just, <laughs> just to say anything that comes to mind about anything at all well I, I, I'll do my best but I, I want to do justice to the book which as I say is compelling and the, 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 the plot point that I will, will say to give people a thread if you haven't yet read it is that the premise of the novel is that Saul Adler is hit by a car crossing the Abbey Road zebra crossing twice Potentially, potentially twice. First of all, when he's 28 years old, and then again in 2016. And telescoping out of that, it seems to me the novel is about how we see ourselves and the monumental effort it takes to make us see ourselves and others differently and how cataclysmic things have to happen in order for that to be facilitated or enabled. Catechismic things in your personal life 
and in your political life. And this is a novel that has time slips that moves back and forth. Um, and sometimes those moments are imbricated or overlapped yes. in complicated, almost hallucinatory ways. I think uh, we're going to get to a reading, but I did want to ask a sort of a, a, a starting question, which is that, did the book have a starting point? Was there a, a central idea or image at the moment of its conception? Yes. I spent quite a lot of time sitting on the wall of EMI Studios on the Abbey Road, looking at tourists from all over the world across the road uh, in the style of the Beatles. And I really loved that. I, I enjoyed people fooling around. And I realized that it was quite a dangerous place because you could get run over. And that the, the zebra crossing itself well, in terms of form, where, do, where, where does the crossing end and begin? Because you cross both sides. So that kind of interested me a lot because most people want to cross from the EMI studios and the style of the original photograph. But people were doing both ways. So it was a dangerous, structured place to play. And it was visually interesting with the, with the black and white stripes. So I was born in South Africa, and I arrived in Britain when I was nine. And one of the things that happened to me in the school playground was that I was the only kid at school who'd never heard of the Beatles. I hadn't watched any of the TV programs that, that children have watched of my age. Why was that? I think the Beatles were banned or something. So that, that sort of comes up in the book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when the when Bob Dylan and, and the Beatles were allowed to be released in the in, in communist Eastern Europe in, in the GDR, all these lyrics, yeah, 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 were scrutinized by the Stasi. And that really fascinated me. And I thought they were probably right to take a look at yeah, 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 because, because what's being said yes to? Yeah. So, 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 so that interests me a lot. And then I thought, what would happen if I had... Uh, I wanted to write about male beauty, freakish, freak, because beauty is quite freakish, extreme beauty. It's sort of on that strange borderline of, 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 you know, of something we want to gaze at and fall into, are quite repelled by in a strange way too. So I wanted to write about a beautiful man He's a minor historian. This is very important. He's not a rock star. And, um, and, and I would sit there knowing that a, a book was kind of beginning. And I wondered if this man could fall through the tarmac of the zebra crossing into East Berlin in 1988. Just fall through it. Then I decided that was a... If, if I made that kind of contract with readers, it was as if nothing had any consequences. It was a bit Alice in Wonderlandish, you know. And consequences are important to me. Something, you know, things are at stake in the world. So I decided to do it another way. And I began to research the way the original photograph was taken by Ian Macmillan on the Abbey Road. 
literally he had 10 minutes a policeman was was stopping the traffic and all of that and then i always wanted to write about the berlin wall it always fascinated me and so i wrote about my own preoccupations and fascinations as ever and that's where the novel unfurls we, so we should say that there is this incident in 1988 where Saul allegedly presumably perhaps gets run over yeah, on Abbey Road and then he heads off to to uh, the GDR he heads over to East Berlin uh, East Germany and has an adventure there uh, and is thinking about the Stasi and then he comes back and we have another incident in when is it it's in 2016 yeah. which on a very particular date which we'll get to in a moment and then it's about the people around him that seems like a nice setup to get you to to, to read for us and okay if you haven't yet bought the book then this is your your taster to do so so the man who saw everything is it possible or desirable to see everything it's also uh, the man who saw everything is also about a 30-year argument between a man and a woman it just goes on for 30 years Saul Adler and Jennifer Moreau I'm just going to read the opening paragraph It's like this Saul Adler when I was 23 I loved the way you touched me but when the afternoon slipped in and you slipped out of me you were already looking for someone else No It's like this Jennifer Moreau. I loved you every night and every day, but you were scared of my love and I was scared of my love too. No, she said. I was scared of your envy, which was bigger than your love. Attention, Saul Adler. Look to the left and to the right. Attention. Cross the road and get to the other side. And then we start with with Saul Adler on the Abbey Road in London September 1988 and Jennifer Moreau takes a picture of Saul Adler crossing the zebra for her boyfriend's translator in East Berlin because his sister Walter Muller's sister Luna is a big fan of the Beatles and she's very happy apparently just to have a nobody like Saul Adler imitate John Lennon so she's taken the photograph and they go home and uh they lying in bed together and i'm just going to read this bit here i knew that jennifer was turned on by my body but i got the impression as she guided my fingers to touch her in the places that most thrilled her that she was not that interested in my mind she started to tell me how artists like claude cahun and cindy sherman meant more to her than stalin and eric honecker and how she preferred sylvia plath to karl marx though she liked the line in the communist manifesto about a specter haunting europe i mean she was whispering now Usually a ghost just haunts a house or a castle but Marx's ghost was haunting a whole continent maybe the specter was standing under the Trevi fountain in Rome to cool off from the slog of being a haunter or buying some bling in the Versace stalls in Milan or watching a Nico concert did i know that Nico's real name was Christa 
I did not want to know that right now. And that Nico, who was born in Cologne, was haunted all her life by the sound of bombing in the war. Nor did I want to know, and Jennifer stopped touching me at an erotically fierce moment to reach this thought, that a spectre was inside every photograph she developed in the dark room, and I did not recall the scene she liked in the film Wings of Desire, which we had recently seen together, where one of the angels says he wants to enter his, the history of the world. But now, she said, she wanted me to be the spectre inside her. So, without any spoilers, it is a bit tricky, the spoiler <laughs> thing. The book is about surveillance. It's about the way we look at each other, and it's about the way the state looks at us. Saul asked Jennifer to marry her, but she tracks where he's looking at the time, and I, 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 won't, I won't give that away. And she just dumps him. Get going, Saul. I don't know why you're hanging around. Jennifer slipped on a kimono with a dragon embroidered on the back and then edged her feet into her favorite sandals, which were made from car, fire, car tires. She was practically pushing me out of the door. Abbey Road was a 12-minute walk from Hamilton Terrace. Something compelled me to return to the site of the near accident. I would have to take it slowly because I noticed I was limping and that the white jacket was torn at the shoulder. Jennifer Moreau was ruthless and she seemed to know a lot about my life. While I was thinking about this, a woman came up to me waving an unlit cigarette in her hand. She was wearing a blue dress and asked if I had a light. Her short blonde hair was so light, it was almost silver. Her eyes were palest green, like glass washed up on a beach. She asked if I was a jittery person. Nope. Nervous then? Nope. A fragment of a poem I did not know I knew came to mind. I spoke it out loud to the woman smoking her cigarette. We are the dead. Short days ago, we lived, felt dawn, saw sunset glow, loved and were loved. She nodded as if I was being normal, which I wasn't. It's by John McRae, I said. He was a Canadian doctor, but he signed up as a gunner in the First World War. When she walked away, I read the words on the back of her blue dress. It was a uniform. I realized that she was a nurse and that in the song Penny Lane, there is a nurse who sells poppies from a tray. We're going to have to navigate the spoilers, but there's so much we can tell you about the book without giving or spoiling the book. One place to start, it occurs to me, Deborah, is the title. Because when I first realized the title was The Man Who Saw Everything, I thought that sounded... David Bowie-ish rather than the Beatles. But over the course of reading the book, I've been repeating that title differently in my mouth with the emphasis falling differently. But I wanted to ask you about the title. How should we read the title? So I'm not going to explain the title, but 
some of the things that, that kind of float around the title are it's it's fairly cold warish and 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 I am looking at at communist East, Eastern Europe and I'm giving it some problems with the arrival of of Saul Adler so there is that it's possible that you know it's it's is it desirable to see everything if I think if we saw everything we'd never fall in love love has to be blind otherwise we'd run a mile the theme of political and personal surveillance runs through the book from from the off and the title references that as well yeah that was very skillfully done without giving everything away there's also an epigraph from Susan Sontag there are two epigraphs but one from Susan Sontag's essay on photography and it's the particular essay about Plato's cave can I read that yes yeah if you've got copies you'll find it obviously in your copies, it's uh, to photograph people is to violate them by seeing them as they never see themselves, by having knowledge of them they can never have. It turns people into objects that can be symbolically possessed. And Jennifer, who has this wonderfully French starletish name, Jennifer Moreau, is a photographer and Saul is under the impression or believes or thinks he knows that he is the subject of her photography. And it's one of the revelations of the book that comes very gradually that he is not her only concern. Um, but I wanted you to, to talk a little bit about the place of photography in the book, because that seems to me incredibly important. Yeah, so, um, so, so I flip the, the, the gender of, of a muse. Um, I'm really fascinated by the idea that people are muses, mostly women. So I make I think it's a, I think it's a it's a very undesirable thing to be a muse. You just have no agency if you're a muse. You know, it's better to plant tomatoes and hope that somebody finds your dirty fingernails adorable. <laughs> um, it's it's sort of like Saul is Jennifer's muse. And it's something that he quite enjoys but he rightly feels violated he feels that that he's been possessed in her photograph she says uh, when the book starts she is 23 she's an art student and when when the book ends she's 51 so Susan Sontag was such an inspiring book and she says that photography is really an inventory of mortality so every time you look through a, 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 an album of photographs I think that is absolutely true but she does want to possess him because he is so emotionally detached and she says later the only way I could reach you was was, was through the lens of my camera but that's not the end of the story. That it's more complicated than that because she she likes she likes the lens of the camera between her and him, and so it is a kind of wall. And so lenses and walls get but get get a bit of an airing in in the book. Jennifer's character. Perhaps it's a naive question to ask you about whether you are a Jennifer whether you are a soul, but there is something in Jennifer that reminded me of 
Deborah in The Cost of Living. <laughs> or Deborah at the beginning, if those of you know cost, The Cost of Living, the memoir, at the beginning there's a young woman at the, at the beach bar and she's talking to the big silver fish. Yeah. And she, you are observing and you realise that he doesn't seem to realise that he is not the major character in a story, that mm. the young woman could be a major character. And I was really interested in thinking about that, that, you know, that Jennifer's situation is that Saul is so beautiful and also so self-concerned for all sorts of reasons that he doesn't realise that he may not be the major character in the novel and yet at the, or in the world, but at the same time, this is a novel told by Saul. And I wondered how you squared all of that in your head as you were writing it, to write a novel from a man's point of view. Yeah, so, so how do you write a novel where, where, um, where you're questioning the central place of the male narrator in the story? Precisely. Well, you have to read the book. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's going on. Is Jennifer myself? Well, I think, I, think, I, think, I think it's a fair enough question, honestly. I'm up for it. I think, I think, I think, I'm, I think there's something of myself in all my characters. I really do, apart from the ones that I, I encourage you to dislike. <laughs> Saul isn't dislikable. That, I mean, that's the peculiar thing, is that um, he's beautiful and wrapped up in his own trauma, and I want to talk about trauma in a moment. But there is, I think, and he, he, he is seductive uh, in the way that people who are in love with their own life are seductive. You are also reproving him, it seems to me, in the novel, that we are also mm -hmm. asked to slight... There is a kind of disclosure that comes to him over the course of the novel through other people and through various things that happen to him. And there is... Is there a reproof, too, of that, of that kind of man? A reproof. <laughs> I immediately feel quite protective of Saul Adler <laughs> asking, asking that question. Well, he's been hit by um, a car twice. He has, he has. Well, he's loving because that's the most subversive way to write someone into the world. There's nothing, there's nothing to risk if someone is really not loving. So he confuses Jennifer. His narcissism confuses her because he is also loving. But in every single one of my books, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, I think... I explore how hard it is to feel things. So it's not really that I explore feeling. I explore how difficult it is to feel things because we're all told how brilliant it is for us to be emotionally literate and feel things. And I think, well, you know, come off it. <laughs> um, it's very painful to feel things. And so I, that's my subject. And it's a subject, and it's, it's my subject for Saul. It's painful for him to feel things. And as he says, he brings a big portion of his sorrow into the GDR, into Communist East Berlin. I asked some of my young daughter's friends if the GDR meant anything to them, and they said, well, do you mean GPS? <laughs> So I never really know how to sort of play that one. I guess it's the GDR, the GDR will do. So he brings a big portion of his sorrow into the sorrows 
of of the GDR. So he doesn't have, a, he has a different status. He doesn't come with the status of a Westerner. He comes. He 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 needs the kindness of strangers in the GDR, and that's another theme in all my work. Yeah, is the kindness of strangers. And you and I, if if, if I might disclose this, um, Shahida will be presenting a documentary on Naipaul, and we will be talking together about Naipaul's book, The Enigma of Arrival, and that's a theme. In in Naipaul's book yeah. too, the kind if you've made a long journey to somewhere else, that's what you're going to rely on the, the kindness of strangers and, and their hospitality, and and so he meets Walter Muller, his translator, who he immediately falls in love with, right? Because Walter walks in time with him. There are very strange reasons for falling in love, and. In Saul's case, it's just that Walter Muller can walk side by side with him, without uh, he's, he's, he's limping from his accident, without you know moving ahead or being patronising. He just adopts a pace to walk companionably with him. So I give that an airing, just walking, just walking. And, and, and airing too, yeah. But there's something um, that whole vignette, that section after the accident, where Saul decides to go to East Berlin to do research because he has a theory about Stalin. He wants to do some work on the, the Stasi. He's, he's, he's researching the psychology of male tyrants. That's what his yeah. his doctorate is about. Yeah. yeah. But that whole and his father section. is a male tyrant. Yeah. His father is a communist. Yeah. Uh, a, 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 an East End Jew, who they, they they grew up poor. Saul Adler's the first person in his family to get to university. His beauty helps disguise his ignorance. High cheekbones and intense blue eyes. He he says really helps. And he's a, a, a communist Eastern Europe is his subject. The way you describe him, it's easy to understand why someone would fall in love with him. But the whole relationship with Walter and they fall in love with each other mm. in East Berlin. That whole vignette is staggeringly lovely, romantic, painful. And the whole sequence in this different place where he is having to he's incapable of seeing himself differently when he, he has to, he's being surveyed. But that was all fascinating, but I wondered what your particular interest was in that moment, the East Berlin in the 1980s. What was its particular allure for you, and what's it doing in this novel? Yeah, because my generation grew up with the Cold War, and when, the, when in 1989 the borders opened and the war started to come down, I don't know if any of you remember that photograph of Honecker and Gorbachev kissing. It looks like they're snogging. Mm. It looks like they really are in a romantic situation. And at that time, I was a fellow in creative and performing arts at Cambridge. And I, 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 I saw that photograph in the, in the newsagent. And the first thing I did as a fellow was try and photocopy it and enlarge it. And I was hogging 
the I, I just knew it was a historical photograph, and I was hogging the photo the, the, the photocopier room with 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 these two men in a deeply apparently in a deeply intimate kiss, just as the regimes that they had propped up were about to to fold. I still have those photographs, those photocopies in a file from. Uh, 1989. So it was as if this book had really was really sort of laid down inside me then, when I was 29, and wrote so many years, so many years later. I never went to to East Berlin, but I did travel to Poland around 1988, and it was a fascinating. It was it, it, it was just so fascinating to talk to artists who were suffering very badly, but making amazing art in these regimes. And so I was always, always going to write about it. And uh, when I went to walk the wall, as it as it were, and I went to Berlin, there's so many triggers, you know, in a in quite a Zeboldian way. I was in Alexanderplatz. This is in 2017, and it was February, and it was raining, and it was grey, and the rain was—it wasn't sleet. It was freezing rain just before it became becomes sleet, with the glistening tram tracks, and I went for a coffee in a Spanish place. Called Cafe Madrid, and the unfortunate thing about this place—it's the only place open in Alexanderplatz—was that it was tiled with white tiles, with a big fake or, uh, orange tree in the middle of the table, with plastic oranges, and then sort of coming out of the white tiles was a tap. My, the trigger for me—I I wasn't looking for it. It's just being gas. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit PlushCare.com/weightloss. That's PlushCare.com/weightloss. Yeah, and you know, it just looked like a bathroom. I was in a sinister bathroom with an. Fake orange tree in the middle, and then I saw another tap. They did some sort of strange, strange interior design they hadn't finished. You're not looking for these triggers, but they just sort of come at you in um, Berlin. And so I have Saul Adler ask some taboo questions of Walter. All those questions that you that are not fair to ask at all. So in 1942. Would you have been my friend? Walter says yes. You wouldn't have been allowed to swim with me or go to the cinema with me. 
How, how, how does that land with you? Bad, bad, says Walter. I would have done everything I could to save you. Now, these are taboo questions. You can't sort of go around asking these questions of friendly people in Germany, right? Or, or, yeah. or anywhere else. But he, I wanted to go there. But Walter has to survey Saul. To, he has to write a file on Saul to save himself. And I write about that. There are incredible overlaps in that section where Saul is haunted by his... Not, <laughs> it's so hard not to give things away. But he's haunted by his dead father or the spectre of his father. And in the same way as East Germany is haunted by the spectre of Marx, of communism, and surveillance is a form of haunting too, that you're constantly looking over your shoulder, that somebody is, is following you, and that, so, that, so, so that ghosts are a, are a theme. But the, the other thing that, that occurred to me about um, Berlin, uh, particularly, is that Saul is haunted by Freud in this book, you know, that he has this traumatic experience and the definition of trauma is repetition, the inability to, to leave something behind, to, to end up reliving it. And I, I mean, this is one of the things that people say often about your work, about how psychoanalytical it is. In this novel, we have an authoritarian father. We have somebody who's haunted by repetition. We have songs by the Beatles, lyrics that come up again and again, certain phrases and refrains that repeat. And I wondered how conscious, I'm using that word deliberate, deliberately, your Freudian or psychoanalytical architecture is, or whether this is a novel that is just informed by your thinking of the world, which is by its nature mm. psychoanalytical. Well, fair enough. I'm, I'm as influenced by the surrealists, I have to tell you, as I am by Freud. But I do have, whenever I, whenever I start a new book for readings, here's a, here's a quote from James Baldwin that, that I just put in the book. People are trapped in history, and history is trapped in them. So that's all of us. So I was at a bus stop today, and there was a, a father being really unkind to his small son. And I could see that father's childhood really clearly in that four-minute wait for the bus. So history was trapped in him, and history will be trapped in his son. So that's just a sort of very simple way of, of explaining this. It's not like I want psychoanalytic history to sort of walk all over my books with big, heavy boots. Not at all. It doesn't feel like that but how? All. But how can we not look at how history is trapped in us? And how can, how can you resist the fact that Stalin punished people for thought crimes, for unconscious crimes that, that had not actually been committed? But in a way, he was sort of right. So Saul, there's a riff with Saul about this, because Saul kind of... He, his father was so brutal. He's wished his father dead so many times. So, you know, when his father literally dies, it's as if it's as if it's about the third time he's died, because he's just wished him dead. 
all these times. <laughs> and then he discovers that he quite likes his father and he misses him and he misses his father's certainty and, um, and, and all of that. Can we... We, did, we discussed which spoilers we could give away and this was one spoiler you said that I could give away. Yeah. And if you are someone averse to spoilers, block your ears right now. But it turns out, uh, please do so <laughs> if you need to, that Saul's father is not dead. And we get the return of the father, the return of the repressed. We do. And um, in Berlin, there's a particular, there are a couple of moments where Saul seems to know things in 1988 that he ought not to know. He knows that yep. the wall will come down, yep. that other things will happen. Yep. He has a, a kind of, he's not even prophetic. You suddenly, the rug is pulled out from under you and you realise this is a character who... But there are, there are good reasons for that. <laughs> but I'm not going to tell you what they are. Cause you, I, I'm, yeah. not, I'm not going to ask you why, but I do yeah. want to ask you how hard it was to write a novel that is in at least two different times at once. Yes. Because that seems to me to be a remarkably complex act of assembly. Yes. So I want to ask you about writing a novel that is in 1988, in 2016, in between, and now as well. Yeah. So it's a novel about now. And gosh, where are we? Where are we now? Maybe we need to end this and go to Parliament. You know, I, 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 I don't know. Yes, so I collapsed two time zones, 1988 and 2016, and I braid them together. And so I was right out of my comfort zone because I had to find techniques to do that. I didn't know how to do that. I had to find them because I needed them for, for, for the story. And, um, and it was actually exhilarating to write. And it was exhausting to write because I was having to cut into time without losing the narrative. So there was one time I did a 19-hour writing shift, which I don't recommend ever. It's not a good thing to do. But I had to know what was on page four when I was writing page 124. And I was having to find a form and a, and, and a structure to hold just like that zebra crossing, which, you know, which, which you, you, you cross it, where does it begin and end? You have to cross it from both, both sides. And so that was the challenge of the book. And, and, and that it was something that I've never done before. I, I mean, it's when you, you have a, I'm not giving things away because you have a sense of the swerve that's going to come as it, as it that's part of the grace of the book and the, the, its accomplishment. And yet when it comes, it is tremendous. And it just it occurred to me that that must be, that there's something about the way that the present is corrupted by the past, that these characters are haunted by their past, but also it's interesting that the second accident happens. Does he, he's, he's, he wakes up and he asks, he tells the doctor that it's 1988 and that there's he a imagine, he, he imagines that he's, he, he thinks he's still in 1988, and actually he's in 2016. And so the past, in 1988, comes back to haunt 2016. So what I was looking at is the effort it took post-1945 to create a peaceful post-war Europe. 
That's my argument. What it took to create that. So, maybe I should read a little bit um, about that. It's so hard not to give things away. I know. But it's also a really important part of, of the story. I'm just going to read... I'm going to go straight towards the end of the book. This is Saul Adler. I looked into the mirror for the first time since my accident. Fuck off, I hate you, I said to the middle-aged man staring back at me. His hair had been shaved, he was a skull. His eyes a shock of blue in his pale face. He had high cheekbones, a cut on his cheek and on the lip. His eyebrows were silver. Where have you gone, Saul? All that beauty blown to bits. Who were you? What languages do you speak? Are you a son and a brother and a father? Are you an acquisition? How do you get along with your female colleagues? What is the point of them in your view? What is the point of yourself in their view? Are you a good historian? Which way do you vote? Do you ever play football, cricket, ping pong? Are you curious about other people? Or do you walk on the outer edges of life, indifferent, remote, tormented by the affection human beings seem to feel for each other? Are other men envious of you? Are you loving? Have you ever been loved? Yes, I have been loved and I am loving, I said to the man in the mirror. I am all these things, I am, I am, and I need to know what happened to Walter Muller. Jennifer, who's by his side, says, you know what happened to Walter Muller. Jennifer was reading a book at my side. Her hair had turned blue in the light, she was floating like cells under a microscope as she pressed the book against the curve of her breasts. You saw him on your 30th birthday. And in 2016, we then go back to, to Berlin in 1990, where he meets the man who he betrayed and who betrayed him. But that, that might feel like a big reveal, but it's really not. Um, there are so many, there are other things that emerge that, com that knocks me off my feet. And I, that seemed to me the point that not just Saul, but that all of us perhaps are people that we do not think that we are and that we don't always present the fullness of our relationships to other people. And that's what, what surfaces in the second half of the novel. But one of the, 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 the themes that emerges most strongly, and it's come up in a few of the reviews, and I, I want to ask you this before I turn to the audience, is about carelessness. That one of the themes of the novel is carelessness. And yeah. I want to ask what, what that word itself has, there's something a bit throwaway about that word. To be careless is to forget to put the cap on your toothpaste, or in this case, to not buy the tin of pine, the tinned pineapples that you've been asked to bring over from, from London the west to the east to, the, yeah. to, to Berlin. But in the course of your novel, it becomes apparent how the magnitude of carelessness. And I want to ask you to talk about that as, as one of the themes of the book. 
Yeah, I am very interested in attention. So, I mean, I guess a writer is only as interesting as what she pays attention to. So you can read a very skilled writer who can, uh, you know, on the level of the sentence, but you just, they just bore you shitless because, because you, you're just not interested in what they pay attention to. So attention is my subject. Hyperattention is a sort of mania, and that's very exhausting. Uh, but Saul is careless. There's careless, and, and you can break the word into two, careless. And it sort of works for him. That's what interests me. His carelessness seems to attract other people who, who care for him. You sort of you sort of lift him up, so he never actually has to face the consequences of his own carelessness. And Jennifer Moreau is the one is the is the one person in his life who who takes him up on it. Um, and in the GDR, where you have to be very careful, a comment is made about Saul is that he does he, he doesn't care about other, the lives of others because he doesn't care about his own life. And so actually I'm looking at someone who, who actually f who, who feels pretty small, is careless, and sort of has a sort of death wish. And um, that's of great interest to Jennifer, and it's of interest to, to me. And it's, 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 it's one of the subjects in, um, in The Man Who Saw Everything. And it's that the man who, ra who runs Saul over, brings this up. How did you cross the road? And Jennifer brings it up. Look to the left, look to the right. And Walter brings it up. And, and various other characters, not to give it away. And he's saved by the attention of other people. Yes. That's what saves, that's what saves Saul. I, I and there's something that happens in our own reading where we have to realise that we could have been more attentive to, that we could have cared and we would have understood this man differently and in the way that we finally understand him at the end of the novel, which I think is, is also really gratifying. And it's one of the, the great merits of the book that, that there's this, the smallness of, of your, your carelessness that you could forget a tin of, 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 of pineapples that that could have this enormous consequence subsequently. It's part so, of so, work. So Saul Adler is asked to bring, by his hosts in East Berlin, a tin of pineapple, and he forgets. And this has huge consequences. So I, I kind of use the tin of pineapple a bit like Chandler uses a gun. Uh, it, becomes, it becomes something very significant. This is book. your, your yes. surrealism. It's as devastating when you realise what the tin of pineapple was for. Um, let's get some questions. Thanks for a really interesting discussion. Um, just a question about maybe the uh, ambition behind the novel, that the sort of novels proceeding have had a sort of more compressed time scale. Yeah. So a few days or a, a month or two, and now suddenly what seems like quite a big and adventurous step into you know, parallel time schemes and those kind of things. I was wondering yeah. what prompted that move. What interested you in doing that or what prompted you to... Yeah, I'm, I'm, 
I think that we, I think that time is the subject of, of the novel in a way. And I'm interested in coexisting time. So, so you're on a bus and you're looking out of the window at someone walking their dog and you have, um, you flash back to two days before today or maybe 14 years before today or maybe both. So that sort of, that, so time coexists in the present for all of us, all the time. I'm interested in the way that we daydream on buses as well, or daydream anywhere. Freud called that making little corrections to reality, daydreams. So you know when you play back something very embarrassing and you, you sort of edit it and you give yourself a line that you didn't have and another thing and you deliver an amazing line that you actually didn't deliver. I'm interested in, in, in all of that and I want to bring it into the novel because I think it is part of consciousness. I think it's part of, I think it's, I think it's the way we live. In terms of a 30-year epic stretch, that's just, that is ambitious and it's just how it had to go had to go 2016 and 1988, so that on the Abbey Road in 2016, Saul Adler is hearing the bells of the trams um, in East Berlin in 1988. And he's seeing a woman who sold cauliflowers in East Berlin in 2016. So, it, it was just a sort of collage and braiding of time and memory and history and feeling that I was going to attempt. That's the, the ambition of this book, told in the first person from, from a male point of view. Thank you, Deborah, for a fascinating book and a fascinating talk. And as you were talking, I began to think, and I have read the book, so I shouldn't give anything away, but I began to think, is this carelessness, the carelessness, um, in a sense, together with, with this wonderful, narcissistic, uh, loving spirit, um, really quite a joyful spirit in some ways of your hero, I mean, is it in a way a kind of parallel to to Western individualism and uh, our capitalist society to make to take it in its grandest sense. I mean, is is were you were you intending that kind of political umbrella as well? Yes, all of it, oh, all of it. Um, so the thing about narcissism, as you know, and it's in the air. <laughs> is that the narcissist, if, if, we, if, we, if we go back to Ovid and, and Narcissus, the myth, actually staring at himself and staring at his reflection and apparently falling in love with it, the narcissist can't see him or herself, needs others, needs to be reflected back to him or her through the admiration or whatever of others. So the interesting thing about narcissism is, 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 is a difficulty in, in, in seeing oneself. And this is refracted back in the car accident because Saul gazes into the mirror of the car 
and the mirror shatters and falls. Its shards actually fall in his reflection, literally, physically, fall into him. So that's how I deal with, with, with narcissism. And it's absolutely... Uh, J.G. Ballard, writing at the end of the 20th century, asked himself a really interesting question. What kind of, what kind of personality will survive, will flourish? in the late 20th century. He, did, he thought it was a psychopath. But I think, I think it's probably the narcissist in the, early, in the early 21st century to be debated. Um, there seem to be quite a few, a few leads <laughs> that way. I just wanted to ask over what period you wrote the book. Obviously, 2016 politically was a big year for the UK. Did that inspire the writing of it or some of what you wrote? Yeah, absolutely. I didn't really want to sort of suffer from 2017 or 2018. Yes, it was obviously, it was obviously a big year. And it, 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 there's only one reference to leaving the European Union uh, in, the, in the whole book. But I, but, but I think that was very much on, on my mind. And it's picking up a sort of atmosphere of, of war, in, 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 in a way. Not just Cold War from the past, but, but, but of war. So it's really worrying. And I, I refer to this in, in, in this book. So I was writing it in 2017. And I was writing quite a lot of it in Paris, where, where there, there are just plaques and memorials all over Paris because of the Vichy government. Every nursery school, children deported to the death camps, every, every, you know, so many statues are the same in Berlin, so many stripping stones, tripping stones. Um, are you familiar with those? Yeah. So, so I think it was writing in Paris that kind of made this more urgent and coming coming back and forth from from Britain. But 2016 seems to be that year. I think will historically go down as a year, a really significant year, as perhaps will 2019. And the, the theme of the past that's yeah. constantly interrupting the present, that seems like a really important way of understanding what happened in 2016 and subsequently. Um, mm. That there is a history that's, that produces the mm. present too. Uh, I've got a, a question about gender, mm -hmm. which I think was a really important theme in the book. And I'm interested that it doesn't seem to have come up in the discussion. I have a fantasy, uh, because I read it a little while ago, that actually our hero, I was really uncomfortable with him being male. I didn't... With him being? Male. I didn't believe for the first section of the book that he actually was male. And I wondered whether you had ever written, started writing it with the hero being a heroine. 
That's no. a fantasy. This, no. and, and obviously, as the book evolves, it becomes mm. clear that that's an important thing, whether or not he is, or how he thinks of his gender. Or, yes. yes. Well, that's so interesting. No, I mean, he's much too entitled to, to ever be anything but male. And, um, but I kind of know what you mean because he's emotionally very open and very available to, to what's thrown at him. And I think that is important. There's no reason why he shouldn't be. I found that he was entitled enough to be male right from the off. The thing about Walter Muller, though, is that in East Germany, a mirror falls from the wall, and it doesn't shatter. And he and Walter, who have just met, start to put it back on the wall. And Saul sees Walter looking at him. So we're going back to the title. He sees his gaze in the mirror, and he thinks, oh, what kind of gaze is that? And he discovers, he reckons, that it's desire. And he's very uh, exhilarated by that gaze of, of that desiring gaze. And so I work, I work on, on Saul, Saul's um, pleasure in Walter's desire for, for, for that section. Thank you. Um, there are unanswered questions in this book. And I know you've been plagued by people who've read the book asking you to answer these questions, and I, I'm not going to do that, but I thought it would be great if you could give us a clue, if you could choose something to read from the book to, for us to close that we could go away with and, and mull oh, over as a clue. okay. I think I've read everything I want to read from this book because there's so many spoilers in it, I'm not <laughs> going to do that. Okay. But, but just to say to you, there is a design in, in, in the novel in which the story can, can be read in, in two ways. And I really look forward to hearing from you about that. And I also want to end by passing on to you something that I learned from Gloria Steinem. It's a bit off-piste. But when I, was, when, I, when I was in Paris, Sylvia Whitman, who owns Shakespeare and Company, called me up and she said, I've got a spare ticket to see Gloria Steinem. Do you want to come? And I did. And Gloria Steinem, at the end of this talk, to my horror, said, listen, I want you to introduce yourself to somebody you don't know. You might discover that you make a friend, find a lover, or um, get a new job. And this was something I really didn't want to do because my French is pretty lousy <laughs> and because I'm actually quite shy. But then Sylvia Whitman had disappeared to do exactly what Gloria Steinem <laughs> had told her to do. So then I found myself having the most interesting conversation that I had in, the whole, in my whole time in Paris. Um, and, uh, you, you know, no one wants to do this, but I, I, I just pass it on as a thought, introduce yourself to someone you don't know, and especially when you read my book, because then you'll have someone to discuss it. With. <laughs>
Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes. <laughs>